1: what a world what a life what a day saturday april 22 2023 we have a great show episode 145 involves the return of michael johnston would be mayor of denver i think he's got a great chance former state senator great cast. episode 134 he's back episode 145 different questions And we get into Skull and Bones, his Ivy League education, his upbringing in Vail, the values his father passed along. He's very impressive, Mike Johnston. But so is my son, Sam, who knows all about Aaron Steinberg, son of Stephanie Steinberg, Harvey Steinberg. We watched this kid grow up. Now he's a big deal, part of the Nelk Boys. Scored another interview with Donald Trump and who's there asking questions. It's this Denver guy, Aaron Steinberg. They call him Steiny, And you'll hear my son, Sam, and Harvey and Stephanie's son, Aaron. And it's amazing. We also have the always amazing troubadour, Dave Gunders, with his song, Every Space. Perfect in every way for a show like this Today talking about Elon Musk, whose rocket ship blew up not long after liftoff. Is that a metaphor for where we are going, especially if he starts Truth, GPT, as he stated on Fox News? Is Fox News the enemy of this state? Remember when Trump labeled all the other media enemy of this state? Every accusation is a confession, with payment of that huge award, Didn't Fox News confess that they lied to the American people about the election? They did it intentionally, and they paid a big price, but was it big enough? We talk about that throughout this show. I think you're going to enjoy this a lot, including my son Sam making his debut, analyzing a kid in his 20s. Is Aaron still in his 20s? Maybe early 30s. Who knows with these kids anymore? But I watched him grow up, and wow. So Sam first, and then Senator Mike Johnston, then our troubadour Dave Gunders and his wonderful song, Every Space. Enjoy Uh, llc.com
0: Now back to the Fred Silverman Show.
1: The war on drugs has never been more serious. There are killer substances out there, including fentanyl. If God forbid you know somebody or a loved one of yours has been affected by fentanyl, Perhaps my law firm could help. Sometimes there's justice in the criminal court system. Other times, civil justice. My number, 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Before I introduce my son, Sam, and his nice words about Aaron Steinberg, a.k.a. Steinie, as part of the Nug Boys, who have a powerful podcast called Full Send that has gazillions of followers, and they just had on Donald Trump. Before that, they had Elon Musk. It's amazing the guests that they get. But it's also disturbing the way they become a mouthpiece for Donald Trump, who could really be the ruination of America. Who will stand up to him? Well, not the Nelk boys. They want access. They get it through Dana White, who runs UFC Ultimate Fighting. He's tied in with Trump and with the Nelk fellas, and it's a big uh, platform because UFC is popular throughout the world. Donald Trump has a following throughout the world, and Donald Trump is dependent on selling the big lie, the lie that he lost not because he got less votes, but because he got cheated, which just strikes at the heart of democracy, and it just cost Fox News a lot of money. But Donald Trump is dependent on that, and he's going to keep repeating... That bullshit any chance he gets on Tucker Carlson show or with the Nelk fellas. And Aaron Steinberg sat there, and did he confront Donald Trump? He's there with a guy named Kyle. Kyle is one of the originators of Nelk, as you'll hear from Sam. And Kyle goes all in for Trump saying, hey, sir, you're the guy we need. The world's falling apart. Things were better when you were president. So at the outset of the interview, they make that clear. And along the way, here comes Stein to suggest that the whole system is rigged and we're a third world country. And he throws that kind of sympathetic leading question to our 45th president. And of course, Trump runs from it. Listen to this.
2: We don't have freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the press, because, you know, the press used to be like a piece of paper. You're the press now. You and other people and other things, whether it's Internet or not. I didn't know that. That's terrible. Do you think that we're becoming like a, a third world country where we're going after like former leaders? Like a banana republic? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's what they do in third world countries. They go after former leaders so they can't come back. I have people investigating me over nothing, over things like the boxes hoax, and we had a DA from New York who campaigned, and an AG in New York, campaigned on, I will get Trump. But they investigate me over things that, that Biden has been horrible with. He's broken every law, every regulation in the book, every single regulation in the book. Nobody talks about that because it's called election interference. Everyone sees it now though. They see it.
1: And then again, Donald Trump slips in an opportunity to talk about the big lie. And Steinie throws him another softball, referencing what I think is despicable, the fact that Donald Trump is siding with the worst offenders on January 6th, and he recorded a song with them, the J6 choir, that he plays at his rallies, a distortion of the Star-Spangled Banner. But it's Trump's distortion, so they all love it. And there he is with people in jail. And he's saying January 6th was righteous because he got cheated in the election. And here, the Full Send podcast gives him that opportunity. And the softball is thrown by Colorado's own Aaron Steinberg, a.k.a. Steiny. At first, Donald Trump, who's nearing 80, doesn't understand what Spotify is, but Aaron Steinberg realizes there's a little bit of an old man communication problem and prompts him further with a softball question that Trump uses to reinforce the big lie.
2: You've done a great job, fellas. You were talking about Rocket Man. And it's true. Right across the hall, right across the hall, you have the most powerful people in the nation. You have the most powerful governors, Senator, you have everybody waiting for me to speak. And here I am sitting with you, not saying to hurry up because you're the nut voice, right? That's pretty good. You're the best. You. You're the best. We, you talked about <laughs> Rocket Man, how you love that song. People don't know this, but you have a Spotify song, don't you?
5: What?
2: A song on Spotify, right? On Spotify. You hit yep. the Billboard charts. You hit the top of the charts. Oh, so we did a, uh, that's right. I had The Apprentice. It went to number one. I did great in real estate. I did great in politics. The one thing I hadn't done, you know, I always wanted to be Elvis Presley. <laughs> I hadn't hit number one on the charts. No, we did a uh, thing, it was actually very beautiful, a, a version of a very important song uh, that you probably heard. And it was done by the J6 prisoners who have been treated horribly. When you see the way Antifa got treated and so many others that did such destruction and caused death. And uh, these people were treated horribly. And they asked, would I do a voiceover? I did basically a voiceover of the song. And it went to number one on Billboard, on uh, iTunes. These are names I never even heard of uh, three weeks ago. But iTunes, number one, Billboard. Number one, Billboard's like a big deal because that's sort of like oh, yeah. you would tell me. But it, as you know, it went to number It's Donald J. Trump and the J6 choir. That's amazing. Wow. That's January 6th. <laughs> and it shows you where the country is. But this song stayed there. And then interestingly, it was taken down by a group because they wanted to try and kill it, because they hated that it was number one. And they said, we accidentally made a mistake in taking it down and we'll be putting it up. And they put it up a couple of days. And it went back to number one again. You know, they tried to kill it by creating a little separation. Um, no, it was a great honor to do it with them. and. It was a great honor to see it hit number one. I didn't expect that. Are you going to be coming out with any follow-up songs, or? Well, we'll do something. We have a lot of things planned, but we're going to have an exciting campaign. We have rallies planned all over the country, and they're going to be massive rallies. I don't know, you guys. We'd love maybe? to come. We'd love to well, come. We'll have you at the rallies.
1: What a ride it's been for Aaron Steinberg, fresh out of Colorado. He, I think he went to see you. They're great Colorado roots for this family, and he's got a huge following on Instagram. People know he's from Colorado. They know a little about his background. You get a chance to learn more, and I'll reach out to see if he or maybe a member of his family will come on. He gets recognized. This is millions of followers. This is bigger than anybody really in Colorado broadcasting that I'm aware of. Aaron Steinberg, sitting down, the Colorado kid with Donald Trump, Elon Musk. God knows who's next. He stood up to Andrew Tate, and I've known him since he was a little kid. I've known Sam Silverman since he was a little kid, and I love him to death. He is 20 years old. I caught him between classes on a Friday afternoon. I asked him to tell me about Steine and the Nelk boys, and he did. While he was rushing out to meet with a professor. Enjoy. What's up? Talk to me. About Aaron Steinberg.
4: Well, Aaron Steinberg is very nice when I ran into him. And then uh Do you remember when you met him as a child? Not especially as a child, but Do you remember when we went
1: to the volcano restaurant with his mom and dad and his siblings and you and Ben? They came Benihana. over to our house first, and then we went to that uh, hibachi restaurant on Arapaho
4: Was it Benihana? I don't remember that. It exact. was it's,
1: It was like Benihana. Anyway.
4: Well, I ran into him later in uh, 2021. It was on February 22nd. I was at the Kanye West show, which now looking back, I have mixed feelings about. But uh, he was with his boss, who's a super famous guy. And I initially Named, tried
1: to... Uh, Dana White, UFC, or the uh, podcast guy?
4: Neither. Steve Will Do It, who was uh, kind of just a YouTuber that made silly content. But I initially tried to appeal to him, and he was going to walk straight past me, probably like he does to most of his fans, until I said, Hey, Aaron, it's Silverman. And he stopped and he made me feel special, got a picture, super nice guy. I can't really speak to his new podcast and all the sex workers he's working with. But he definitely knows what he wants. and He doesn't care what people think, think about him. So
1: I respect that. Tell everybody how big he's gotten. Absolutely
4: huge. I mean, interviewing Elon Musk and Donald Trump, I think that's definitely an accolade. And uh, I think he adds a certain bit of intellectual wit to the podcast, which they're severely lacking. He's pretty much only competent host, makes the podcast actually enjoyable. And although he's not perfect, I enjoy him. And if I were in his position, I probably wouldn't be able to put up with all the racial epithets he gets called. Like what? Like his old boss who had a big falling out with him, calls him the rat. And it's just so obvious he wants to say another thing, but he's the rat, apparently. And I I don't like all the vermin stereotypes that are thrown against him.
1: Because do you think it has to do with him being Jewish?
4: 100%. 100,
1: 100,000. And does he acknowledge it and react to it?
4: I think he probably downplays it more than uh, is respectable. But if I were in his position, it'd be it'd be tough to reconcile wanting success and also not talking back to your bosses. But I think everybody in a position of power within Nelk and Happy Dad has called him that on camera without any type of remorse. And initially he didn't do the the Trump interview, but they just did round two. So I'd like to know what went through his
1: mind. Well that one guy who was part of the first interview uh was represented by Kyle to be uh a non-participant so that they could post it so maybe that allowed the opening tell everybody what nelk is nelk it's it's the it's the first letters of four guys names Kyle is the last guy for the k it's four dudes who got a podcast together but i'm wondering how Aaron Steinberg came to be a big part of it So
4: I've been watching Nelk for a few years, and I might have to fact check you on that name, Origin, but they've definitely blown up beyond measure. Obviously, their partnership with Dana White helps, but Aaron initially got on Nelk through – it's going to make me sound like a big fanboy, but he was running poker games out of Denver, and then he ran into this sports – commentator guy social media commentator named bob menory who has this whole host of issues but he became bob's assistant and was just basically helping fuel this adderall filled lifestyle of bob and going all around town getting him what he needs at ungodly hours and through bob they met nelk bob was initially the co-host of the full send podcast but like I said, he had a whole host of issues that kind of got him ousted from there. And then Nelk kind of picked up Aaron as an asset after that.
1: Gosh, you do know a lot about it. Now, here's what I got off of the internet that the group was originally founded in 2010 and consisted of high school friends Nick, Elliot, Lucas, and Kyle making up the acronym Nelk. I Does that mean, sound true? I mean, it may not be true. Chat GPT spits out wrong answers all the time. But one guy you know about, because it's not a big deal, but you can look it up. But I don't know much about Andrew Tate. Really didn't think about him until he got arrested in Romania. And now he's been held without bond because he allegedly mistreated all sorts of women. Andrew Tate, how long have you been aware of this guy? And Steiny took him on. That showed big balls right there.
4: Well, it was kind of hard not to be aware of Andrew Tate earlier this year. Just, uh, I don't know, you could chalk it up to his Ponzi scheme of a, of a marketing organization or just his sheer polarization. But I'd say every kid my age knew about Andrew Tate about January. And... I can't speak to what he says, being truthful or not, but definitely a very controversial figure. And I think if I were interviewing him, I'm sure he'd try to emasculate me. And maybe I'd just have to roll with it like I did Steiny, because he's a big guy. He's a kickboxer. I don't know how you're really going to stand up to that, but he's definitely a figure. Let's say that.
1: Right, but Steiny standing up to him made Steiny a figure. I mean, the hits that these guys get on their podcasts and they have video, which is really something. If I had video of you right now and I'm looking at you on FaceTime, I've had some wild hair in my days, and son, you've got my wild hair, and I love it. True. Anyway, I think that I've interviewed a lot of famous people in my life, including Jimmy Carter. Did you know I got to cross-examine him a bit? I did it at a remote we were doing from Elway's in Cherry Creek. And have you thought about this, that Jimmy Carter, the oldest president ever, is still living and he's about to set the record for the oldest, longest time in hospice? Remember, he went into hospice about two years ago and he's still alive? That's good genes. But I digress. Sure, I got to interview a former president. But Donald Trump, while he's running again, Aaron Steinberg had that opportunity. That's big time. Millions of people will see that. And you know the dude. Just it's unbelievable. A kid from Denver.
4: Totally. Yeah. And Trump told him he had good questions.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm proud of him and whatever. But what would you have said?
4: What would I have said to Trump if he told me I had good questions?
1: Here's what I would have said. When he shook my hand, I would have said, hey, is this the same hand you shook Nick Fuente's hand with in Mar-a-Lago?
4: That's clever. Did
1: you wash it a few times since then? That's
4: probably what I'd say as well. Thanks for having me
1: on, Dad. All right. See you, man. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor, Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
6: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place, so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power. Attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
6: best way uh, you can give me a call my phone number is 720-394-6887 and again that's 720-394-6887 or you can go online to Michael Law michaeldailylawllc.com and there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use so either way is fine
1: thanks michael Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at craigscoloradolaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at Craigs Colorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, Craig, how are you? Good, Michael. How are you? I'm great,
7: thanks. Excited to be back in touch.
1: Yes, your last episode was so successful that you won round one. Well,
7: great. I love doing
1: it. Episode 134 is a gem, and I'm not going to chew our cabbage twice. I encourage people to go back to episode 134, especially about this 70-minute mark where I said, hey, who's a good mayoral role model for you, Mike, and you said a guy named Federico Peña. And then <laughs> after round one, if he didn't issue a strong endorsement of you, uh, just like you did on uh, episode 134 of him, what is the mutual attraction there?
7: You know, I, I think that, um, I'll certainly say what I find compelling about, about him. I, I think that he had a, a big vision for the city. You know, he believed that Denver was, capable of being more than what it was at that moment. You know, they had real challenges in that moment. They were trying to figure out if they could grow out of being a cow town, would they be able to grow to the next stage? Could they handle some issues around climate and traffic and congestion and uh, even affordable housing and some issues on homelessness? I mean, they faced some of the same questions the city faced now. And I think he both built a big vision for the city and he inspired really broad coalitions. You know, he brought people together from all communities across the city to work together to get it done. And he was both a visionary, who I also think uh, was a great implementer and executor, built a great team, executed really effectively, and left a profound legacy. Everything from Denver International Airport to the Convention Center to the Rockies, uh, I mean, you name it, just sort of a whole set of, uh, you know, the vision for Lodo, um, a whole set of transformative components in Denver history that I think he was a real leader on.
1: Gosh, those are three things that need some fixing, DIA, Lodo and the Rockies, but we'll get around to that.
7: (laughs) You know, Craig, my favorite part of the story was, I I, I mentioned also that, um, you know, he was elected mayor in the spring of 83, um, uh, right soon after where a uh, Baltimore Colts draft pick decided to defect and come to Denver, and John Elway landed in the hands of the Denver Broncos and started the golden era of the Denver Broncos. So if we can bring around that transformation uh, as well, that would be my best possible parallel to Federico Peña. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I remember all that because I lived through it. Federico Peña beat my old boss, Dale Thule, to become mayor. It was a big upset, young, progressive uh, attorney. But you can't remember that. You, you're you not even 50 yet, are you? And, uh, and so how do you know all this history about Federico Peña?
7: Well, I know the history from Federico because I talk to people all across the city and I say, tell me who you think about inspiring mayors in the past who did this in the right way. And they'll, they'll all tell stories about him. Uh, I do remember my dad waking me up in the middle of the night uh, when uh, we picked up John Elway. And so I think I was about seven, but it was, um, but it was, that was, that is a moment I certainly remember from the early 80s, but probably not many more.
1: Well, let's talk again about your parents. We did on uh, the prior episode. Are your parents still alive? Are they part of this campaign? Uh,
7: my uh, dad passed away about uh, six years ago, but my mom is, is still alive. Um, and she's uh, 85, getting up there, but she is still happy and vibrant. And so she she is around when she can, but not knocking quite as many doors as um, she might have when I first ran for the state Senate, you know, 12 years ago.
1: <laughs> I re-listened every word you told me. And you talked about your dad bringing you down to Denver for, what, Springsteen concerts, but also to volunteer at his shelter. You also made reference to the fact your dad, who was mayor of Vail for a while, lost his job because he wanted to bring a convention complex. I just wanted you to expand on all of that because when I listened to the prior episode, I didn't follow up and I bet it was interesting to making you uh, the man that you are. <laughs>
7: yeah, I think the most compelling thing about my dad was just he had a real... Hard for service and that manifested in all sorts of ways but yeah the big one was one of my first memories of denver was coming down to denver to work at the soup kitchen and you know cutting up vegetables and serving uh people food who were homeless around the city and like that was a core part of who he was he was a very strong catholic and so a big part of his faith was A real belief in the works side of of religion. And so for us, it was always about what works you could do to help uh, make an impact. And he did that, I think, in his own community. You know, for for him, he was always the person who, you know, back in the 80s, he still had hitchhikers. My dad would pick up every hitchhiker we ever drove by and drive them wherever they needed to go and have great conversations along the way. Um, And so I just felt like he was someone who walked through the world with his arms open uh, and trying to see how he could help whoever he thought needed it. I never saw that as someone to be afraid of, but someone to be welcoming to. And so I think that was probably the most powerful thing that he shaked about me. Um, uh, And I think he tried to keep that all throughout his life. And so uh, that was, those are the things I remember the most. And those are my earliest memories of Denver.
1: You know, the Rockies are relevant because this year I've lost all enthusiasm because the owner said, we're striving for mediocrity. The reason I think you are, leading in this mayoral race. And we'll get to the polls. And clearly, you and Kelly Broth, a great guest on my show, uh, you guys are the top two. But I think both of you sell Denver on what I want to hear. We can be the best. No reason we can't be the best. And I'm thinking about you and your old man and the unique circumstances of Vail, Colorado. Because when I was a little boy, in the 60s, they just kind of created Vail out of whole cloth. And it's like, okay, how are we going to build a city? And now Vail is a world-class city. And I expect your dad was kind of part of that formation. Do you think that informs your view of how to create a community, a city?
7: Yeah, they were real pioneers, you know, who wanted to will a community into existence and wanted to be able to, you had a sense that you knew everybody in town and it was a small town. And if there was a problem then people came together and tried to solve it, you know, it wasn't, nothing was unfixable. It was just a matter of sitting down with the right people and taking it on. And you had a sense that you were, you were owners of that uh, community. I think I may have told you that story about my dad. And whenever we'd walk through town, if there was trash on the ground, he'd always stop and pick it up. And I would say, well, dad, that's, that's not our trash. And he would say, when it's your home, it's always your trash. right? Like mm-hmm. The sense that uh, you are always connected to this, and you and you look after everybody and everyone and everything. Um, and I think that did that did shape me um, into believing that. Yeah, yeah, and those were the people that built the first um, you know grocery store and the first library and the first um, you know town hall and the first trash company, and um, they were they were pioneers who so had to figure it out. And I think that was something that uh, that stuck with me as a no no problem is too big and no task is too small for everybody to pitch in.
1: And where did your dad come from originally?
7: He's from Oklahoma. So my dad and I was born and raised in Oklahoma and um, actually moved out to he had his own struggles. He was an alcoholic uh, for a lot of his early years, and he and his first wife um, had a marriage that I think collapsed in part due to that. And so he he left and came to Colorado to try to start over um, and try to try to build something new. And, um, and uh, first moved to Crested Butte and ran a, ran a movie theater there that got shut down for health violations. So he wasn't always the best businessman, but he certainly had fun along the way. And then uh, ran a bar for a while uh, when he first moved to Males. That would have been mid-50s, mid, mid 50s, late 50s. Then he came to Vail soon after it opened and uh, opened a bar called the New Gnu, uh, which was in the basement of the Clock Tower building. And that was his first venture. And then met my mom, and she decided he ought to do something slightly more honorable uh, with his life. And so they left the bartending business. He went into construction for a while. And then um, they uh, eventually decided to open his bed and breakfast, right, about a year after I was born.
1: The Christiania. We did talk about that. We talked about your education, not that much, and on the stump, and I've watched all the debates that I can. You don't emphasize that you are Ivy League, uh, pre graduate school, graduate school. Well, you tell the story? Where did you go to college?
7: Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, felt very fortunate to have a great education. I got to go to college at Yale, and. Um, i'm uh, part in the scholarship from the climax amax mine where some of my family worked up in uh, climax uh, in the in previous years but i felt like for my parents their focus was always not where you got your education but what you did with it, you know, what you took that education to mean and how you applied it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fourth generation teacher. So my mom was a teacher and my grandma was a teacher and my grandfather was a school principal. And so that was in our blood for a long time. And their belief was your obligation is to get the best education you can and then to make a difference with it, To actually go try to make sure you make the world, world a better place.
1: Here's the thing, Mike. I'd be bragging about it, right? I'd have the degrees front and center on my wall. It's just the way I was raised. <laughs> Ivy League is impressive. And it sounds to me like you didn't have any connections. There's no legacy admission involved. But you had to have exceptional scores. I don't know what you did. How did you get in these grade schools?
7: Well, I tell my kids now. I think it was a lot easier back then. I don't think so. It's always (laughs)
1: been hard to get into Harvard and Yale. Um, Don't be so modest. What you have perfect scores on your SAT.
7: I mean, I, I worked, I worked super hard. I did everything, you know, but I think I was, I tried to be well-rounded. Yeah. I, I can you know, I love sports. I played uh, soccer and I was a hockey player and I was a ski racer and I uh, did theater and I was interested and involved in a lot of community service. And I, I tried to uh, learn as much as I could and be as well-rounded, uh, as, as I could, uh, and yeah, I had, a, I had parents who really made sure that it was a focus for me to work uh, as hard as I can. And they, they'd make me come home after school and uh, practice vocabulary words sometimes instead of going out to the park. And so they were uh, my friends always made fun of me, but it, it did mean that I had to, I worked as hard as I could. Um, but yeah, and I was the first I think I think I was the first kid in the in Eagle County to ever get the chance to go to Yale. So that was a that felt like a compelling uh, opportunity that I felt very lucky to have. And yeah, my dad had gone to University of Oklahoma, my mom went to a little. Uh, college in upstate New York called Potsdam College on a French Horn Scholarship. And so they were people that really cared about education and pushed me pushed me to do the best that I could.
1: A French Horn Scholarship. That kind of threw me. But again, your scores had to be exceptional because I doubt they had an affirmative action program for a white kid from Eagle. He must have just really stood out because I played Basketball, baseball, and golf, and they weren't throwing, you know, admissions my way. And I wanted to go. And I thought I did pretty well. CU Law was great. I'm not complaining. And uh, Colorado College, I mean, you'd have to admit that's right up there with Harvard. But uh, bottom line is your education has come up a little bit, Mike, because uh, it came out that you were part of Skull and Bones. And I don't know what to make of it. I did a little research, and it seems to me that some people kind of put a conspiracy theory on it. I don't get it. You tell me, what's it all about?
7: Yeah, nothing so dramatic at all. It's just a—it's uh, a social club. It's um, when I was there. It's open to all genders, all races, all backgrounds. It's a—a a lot of colleges have this. It's kind of like a one-year fraternity or sorority, except for their co-ed, and uh, and a lot of folks at L do it uh, in different versions. But it's essentially a debating club. People come together and discuss issues, and that's um, part of your senior year. But I've a bunch of other extracurriculars, and I haven't gotten any questions about the one-man show I did of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which got got terrible reviews, or my uh, performance uh, in in, uh, uh, King Lear, which I also did. I I actually spent a lot of my, probably the most meaningful thing I did in college was I spent most of it working in um, uh, public housing projects outside of my dorm called Church Street South, where I spent most of my time mentoring uh, middle school and high school age boys. And that was actually, I think, what pushed me down the path towards teaching was I both Love the education I got, but really wanted to try to find a way to uh, give back. And I was doing after school support for these mostly kids and young men, but felt like, gosh, I'm going to make a bigger impact on their life. I really want to be able to change the experience they're having from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day because I'm just trying to put band-aids on it uh, after school. And so that was what compelled me to want to become a school teacher, following, of course, my mom and grandmother's footsteps. And that was and I wanted to go to a place where there were real inequalities in the country. And I could men I would always studied a lot about the South. Um, and about the history of the civil rights movement. And Dr. King had been a hero of mine since I was a kid. I used to memorize King's speeches and give them on the fireplace when I was little. My mom loves to tell that story. Um,
1: I believe you. I mean, I, you buck in the Deep Hearts core, and I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I just think, once again, if I was part of an, uh, uh, Skull and Bones, and well, there are many presidents who have been part of it, many powerful people. I think that there's an effort there at the Ivy League school. Once again, I've never been there to kind of select future leaders, some maybe sports-oriented. Maybe you were picked out because you were going to be a great educator or mayor of Denver. Who knows? But is it something that you are ashamed of, proud of? How do you feel about Skull and Bucks?
7: Oh, I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the people I got to meet. They're fascinating, diverse people who are doing interesting things around there world and those relationships were special so for me it's like a lot of the other phases of your life they were people i played soccer with in college and i was there with who are close lifetime friends that i stay in touch with some of them are out knocking doors for me in the race for mayor right now so i think um i'm grateful for the relationships i built and the people i met that's true for a lot of experiences both for college and grad school and jobs that i've had but yeah they're, they're just they were unique wonderful people i got to meet and for that i'm certainly grateful
1: Well, let's do move down south, because you are an expert. Your path was different after the Ivy League than a lot of people. I think you were with uh, 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 Teach for America, and you went down in the fall of 1997 to the old south, and I've been thinking a lot about the old south, because I worry that it's rising again, Uh, but you know a lot about it. uh, have those thoughts been going through your mind? You're going so fast in the mayoral race, but did you see what happened in Tennessee, and did you hear about McCurtain County, Oklahoma
7: in Tennessee? Do you mean the expulsion of the legislators yes. or were you really yes, up? the
1: expulsion of the legislators, the black legislators and uh the disparate treatment in them McCurtain county, there was a secret recording somebody left a a recording device in a commissioner's meeting and they were talking like they wanted to lynch black people and they would if they could they talked about uh hit men on reporters who were no- too nosy it just reminded me of you know a hundred years ago in the old south uh, but you know yeah. i i don't know about the old south you do Is the Old South trying to rise again? And what are the implications for the next mayor of Denver?
7: Yeah, I think, you know, my my wife's from Tennessee and grew up in Memphis. And so one of those representatives was from Memphis. And so it was... Uh, heartbreaking to watch that happen. And, you, uh, and, and I think just what was the blatant racism of that expulsion. As you know, there was a white uh, representative as well who had participated in the same protest who was not expelled. And then you have other Republican members of that body who I think have been cited multiple times for serious sexual harassment charges and others and faced no such consequences. And so I do feel like those were places where race continues to motivate um, people's behavior and continues to reveal the prejudice that shows how much work we have left to do. Um, I, I obviously loved my time in the South and I met some amazing students and teachers who were fighting hard to give kids access to opportunity despite the obstacles. Um, and you see the legacy uh, of racism that is still there. But I, I think you can see that legacy right here in Colorado too. I remember when I used to come home from Mississippi and people would say, oh gosh, what's it like to teach in a state that is so backwards or so racist or has such deep inequalities. And I remember I looked it up at that point, And when you looked at states that had the biggest college completion achievement gap. It is if you take a group of six-year-olds in a given state and say how many of those kids go on to finish high school and go to college and graduate. The state with the largest racial achievement gap in college completion in the country was not at that time Mississippi, not Alabama, not Tennessee. It was actually the state of Colorado. Um, And so that's when I thought, gosh, yeah, there's work to do in other states but there is a lot of work to do right here at home uh, and that was why I decided to come back home to Colorado and start my career as a school principal and really focused on how we were going to help close some of those gaps for my kids it particularly was around uh, immigrants and a lot of students who were Latino and were trying to get access to college and and couldn't um, either because of the school system or because at that point they were not able to go to college if they were undocumented and so for me I loved my time in Mississippi and it There's a lot of work to do there, but it also reminded me there's a lot of work to do right here at home. And that was why I came back home and got to work trying to do that.
1: I think it's a big plus your background in education. Last week, episode 144, I had my old pal, Steve Feinsilver, who I went to GW with in 74. He wrote a book called Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks. And he has the same concerns about the way minority kids get treated. But he's specifically about Denver Public Schools. The week before that, I had Morgan Carroll on. She's delightful, a friend of the show. And I asked her, what do you think between Kelly and Mike? And she said, Mike Johnston, she trusts you. I don't know if you heard that. I wrote about it in my Colorado Sun column. That's quite a vote of confidence from Morgan Carroll. How did you feel about that?
7: No, oh, I was honored by it. I was really honored by it, very excited by it. I got the chance to serve with Morgan. Um, and she just has tremendous courage, she has tremendous vision, and she never backs down. You know, she is, I think she's always been a fighter for for working families across the state and for people that don't feel like they have someone to always fight for them. Um, and so I was in, and she's been a great progressive champion on all sorts of issues for decades in this city, and the state. And so I was incredibly honored to have her support. Um, and, yeah, that was that was her. You made my day with that interview.
1: <laughs> well, it looks like the people who you work with in the legislature really like and respect you. I would say among the most impressive endorsements, uh, Terrence Carroll and Peter Groff. Uh, how did you secure that? And what's your relationship with those two?
7: Uh, you know, I've known them for a long, long time. They were, you know, when I first, uh, when we first bought our home in Denver, Terrence was my state representative and Peter was my Senate president. And so um, I, I got to, they were my, they were my elected officials. But uh, when I first uh, ran for office, I ran to replace uh, Senator Groff. And so um, I always say I was the new and less improved Peter Groff when I met people. But um You know, I I knew of their leadership on all sorts of issues around civil rights and around equity and around access and around education. And um, had gotten the chance to partner with them. So when I was working for Obama in 2007 and 2008 uh, and then have over the years since then. And so um, we've been and remained friends and was uh, really honored to have their support. Obviously, Terrence was the first ever black speaker of the House in Colorado. Peter was the first ever black Senate president in Colorado, both trailblazers in their own right and really committed thoughtful public servants. And so, um, I was really excited to get their support.
1: This endorsement game is fascinating, especially when you have the runoff system we do. And we already talked about you getting the endorsement of Mayor Pena. What about, uh, John Hickenlooper or Michael Bennett? Do you think they're at play? Um, is there somebody whose endorsement could make all the difference? You brought up John Elway. I don't know if that would make a difference. <laughs> um,
7: I, I don't imagine that either You know, of our U.S. senators will get involved. I think historically they haven't probably in mayor's races, and I understand that. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think there are a number of other uh, endorsements we hope we have coming uh, that will be key, you know, supporters around the city that are elected leaders and um, community leaders, and so we'll we'll keep rolling that out. We had a lot of great support from uh, labor as well. We got the endorsement of the city and county employees today from ASME, which is a great uh, result for us. We got the uh, electrical workers, we got the sheet metal workers, we got the grocery store employees, UFCW, and so that's all been very uh, very exciting. Um, and so, um, and then we have the key support of a number of our most respected Latina leaders on the west side, folks like Senator Sandoval, Paula Sandoval and uh, Polly Baca and Nita and Rudy Gonzalez and um, just great community leaders who have been, Kendra Sandoval who've been around for uh, for decades doing incredible high impact work in the city. So we feel really excited about the coalition that we're building, but we know it always, Only matters if we can get out and knock enough doors and get enough voters turned out. But I think we'll have the coalition of people that will be able to help us do that.
1: Well, I saw where you've been to all 78 neighborhoods and you have broken bread there. I'd be hard pressed to name all 78 and I won't make you do it. Although, given your (laughs) Ivy League background, you probably could. Uh, What have you learned through uh, walking around? Were there parts of Denver where you said, Wow, I haven't been here before. Or this is really transformed, or there's a great opportunity here.
7: Yeah, I felt like I discovered that almost every day. Even neighborhoods I've been to a hundred times. You find something new you haven't seen before. I will tell you if you need any recommendations on the best uh pubs or donuts or, uh, you know, restaurants around the city, I, I'm your person because I I pretty much ate my way all across the city. And, uh wasn't very good for my body, but was great for uh, my appetite and for getting to meet and talk to people. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that was fascinating. But, yeah, what I found, I think, most was just how inspiring it is to find people in every neighborhood who are creating things, who are entrepreneurs, who are building you know, retail stores or restaurants or coffee shops or brew pubs or community organizations or nonprofits or service organizations. There is just so much energy, so much spirit, so much sense of service in this city. Uh, and for me, it was an incredible inspiration to see that live um, and to see opportunity, to see places where there are needs, there are gaps, there are places where we can build housing. There are places where we can provide uh, better supports for folks that are unhoused. There are places where we have common sense strategies to address crime, but also that there are ways to support these entrepreneurs in building what they're trying to build for their neighborhoods. So uh, it was a really fantastic and inspiring experience for me.
1: Everybody's fighting for space, right? Even with podcasts, hey, give this a listen. I hope people will listen here, but The real estate in Denver, we were landlocked for a long time. Then DIA came along. But right now, you have your plans for your tiny houses. I encourage people to go back to episode 134. But my question comes down to this. How are we fixed for space in Denver? Do we have the space that we need to do the things that the future demands?
7: I do think that we do. We just have to use that space more efficiently. You know, we know that um, we can add more housing. We can add more housing that's affordable. Um, I'm focused on building 25,000 more units of what would be permanently affordable housing. And it's really focused on working families, people that are making 60, 70, 80, $90,000 a year, but still struggling to pay the rent here in Denver. And that would mean you never have to spend more than 30% of your income uh, to your rent. So if you're in one of these units and you make $40,000 a year as a first-year teacher, you don't have to pay more than $1,000 a month in rent. Um, And you don't have to worry that your rent's going to go up because it stays permanently affordable. Yeah,
1: Uh, Mike, I'm not so much interested in affordability, and I know it factors in, but I'm thinking about specific neighborhoods like Cherry Creek, which to me has gotten where there isn't any space. And now I looked, what's going to happen at Belcaro? Is that going to get too crowded? I, that's yeah. what I worry about.
7: Sure. No, there's a lot of places, neighborhoods that have seen a lot of development and a lot of building. And that means they may not need to see a lot more of it uh, in the near future. Um, but I think there are a lot of neighborhoods that haven't yet, that haven't added a lot of development and that have open space, have all industrial that's underused or commercial that's underutilized or parking lots or vacant spaces where you could add housing and you can add, add some density of housing. Even if you look at where I live in Central Park right now, if you go up Central Park Boulevard, there're probably three, four thousand units uh, going in They're all up along that street alone because mm-hmm. it's right next to the light rail, and that's a great opportunity for people to be able to, uh, you know, live right next to the light rail. Don't need a car necessarily; you can jump on the light rail and go to work. And so there are places we can add density along Central Park Boulevard, along Colfax, along light rail, and we should do that to help provide more units that are affordable. So I I do think we have places to do it. And each neighborhood is different. You got to figure out what that looks like in each neighborhood. Not all neighborhoods will have that or need it. But we got to look strategically at how we can do that across the city.
1: I've gotten to know you and Kelly a little bit. You are different in a lot of ways, but in other ways, you're kind of similar. How well do you know Kelly Bruff? What's your relationship been like through the years?
7: Yeah, we've worked together a lot over the years. I mean, I've known her for, gosh, probably 15 years or 20 years and um, worked in different capacities. Some when I was in the state Senate on efforts, some since I was the CEO at Gary Ventures on different projects. Um, I was on the board of trustees at Metro State where she worked for a little while. So uh, we've been working together in different capacities for a long time. And uh, I think she's a talented and good good human being.
1: Were you friends? Did you guys socialize ever?
7: Uh, yeah, we're friends. We we definitely have you know ended uh, events together and um, on boards together and projects together. So we have. I certainly would consider us friends.
1: To the point that you know her daughters, and she knows your son and daughter.
7: I don't know her kids as well because our kids are at such different ages, and so her kids were uh, were grown, and mine were younger, and so we. They are not quite at the co-playing age, Uh, but I I, um, I do know, I think I met them once. I don't know that she's met my kids.
1: So is this going to be a friendly competition? Have any low blows been thrown at you? Uh, No, I think it's going to be a
7: campaign about issues. I think there'll be um, differences we have on how we want to solve problems or differences we have on stands we've taken in the past on different issues. But I think this will be an issue. This will be a campaign about issues. Um, uh, Certainly no personal animosity that I have. For her at all. I think she's a uh, good person. And I think that we probably have different approaches to how to solve some of the problems we're facing um, and different records on some of those issues. But that's all just a matter of comparing facts and records. It's not a matter of any uh, personal animosity.
1: One thing you're both getting ripped for is having billionaire friends. Again, something I would probably brag about. But uh, I was interested in in Sam Gary because Gary Ventures was your last job. And, uh, I'm no expert. I heard the name a lot growing up in Denver. He came here. He was an oil man, right? Started the Piton Foundation. You're the man who took over Gary Ventures. Did you know him and what's his organization all about?
7: Uh, I, I do, do know Sam and did know Sam. Sam, uh, sadly passed away in 2020, um, not of COVID, but during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, an incredible entrepreneur uh, who I think, yes, built a great business, but mostly wanted to build a great community and saw his obligation as trying to find ways to give back. And I think what was brilliant about Sam and Nancy both is they believed that that uh, all sectors should be part of the solution, that philanthropy should be part of the solution, that nonprofits should be part of the solution, that for-profit businesses should be part of the solution, that policy is part of it. And so they built a really innovative organization, Gary Ventures, where yeah, we could do all of those things. You can write grants to nonprofits. You could work on policy change. You could launch or grow new entities to make an impact, or you could invest in companies that were making a social impact on the issues we cared about. So I think they were really ahead of their time in thinking about how to help solve big issues, and I was really grateful to get to be a part of their organization.
1: Speaking of being ahead of our time, these tech guys, who is it, Reed Hoffman, another rich guy, friend of yours, he seems to be on the tech cutting edge. And I think, my God, if the next mayor serves 12 years, the technological changes are going to be immense. Uh, Talk to me about tech. And do you know powerful tech people? And if you do, will that benefit Denver, if you are mayor?
7: Um, I do think that technology is already transforming everything that we do. And it's going to continue to transform more of what we do, everything from how we manage traffic patterns to how we manage climate impact to uh, how we think about supporting uh, folks who are homeless and uh, crime prevention. I mean, those are all can be transformed by technology. Um, And I think we have an amazing and growing tech community right here in Denver and really proud to count a lot of those entrepreneurs as supporters of ours. And so I think we want to make Denver a destination city to grow and launch and start technology businesses as well as we do other businesses. But we'd love to have Denver surpass a Boston and in an Austin as the, the best tech city in the country, because we think the more of that innovation that happens here, uh, the more of those ideas we can use to not just help grow jobs here, but actually help find solutions for some of the city's hardest problems. So I'm very excited to uh, to help grow that sector here in Denver.
1: I think Denver will be a destination city for a lot of people living in Austin, given the new laws coming out of the legislature there and Greg Abbott my God, have you considered how Colorado's a bit surrounded Denver, the Rocky Mountain capital, with some of these restrictive abortion laws, and they're going to probably try to put prayer back in school in Texas? God knows what will be attempted next and adopted in Wyoming, in Utah. Have you considered that and the importance of Denver in this overall a national conflict. Uh, I have,
7: and actually, um, I just put out yesterday a proposal on um, on reproductive rights and choice and protecting access in Denver and making sure that we are um, real leaders on that. And I think, as you see, you know, really a desert of states around us that are going to really restrict and restrict healthcare access. That's going to make it more important for Denver to protect those rights and and see how we can make sure we are an oasis of equality in that way. Um, and so I, I think that uh, we, we've come out strongly in support of that. Yes, I think you do find there will be people in from place, states like Texas who I think businesses who won't want to locate there, employees who won't want to work for businesses that are located there. And if that's an opportunity for us to bring more business to Colorado or bring talented people to Colorado, uh, we'd love to do that. We have to make sure we have the housing stock where they can live and uh, and that's affordable. Uh, but I think we would love to see more businesses being attracted to Denver, particularly as we know, we have a challenge with vacancy in a lot of our office buildings downtown. We have some commercial buildings that are even in foreclosure or back in the hands of their lenders. We've got to be able to revive downtown. And that means encouraging businesses that are here to stay and encouraging more businesses that aren't here uh, to grow here or to come here. So uh, that that will definitely be a big part of it. And I do think more and more employers are looking for what the political climate of that city and that state is, and are they really welcoming and supportive of rights for all people? And so I think that's an important place for Denver to distinguish itself.
1: Episode 134, we talked about guns, and you were a leader on that. uh, High-capacity magazines, uh, go back and review that. People can talk about being for reproductive rights, and I definitely feel that way. And I thank you and Kelly Brough uh, both feel that way, but my gosh, Dottie Lamb has been a big part of that fight for many decades in Colorado. What did it mean to you, Mike Johnston, for her to endorse your campaign? Uh,
7: I have to confess, I did a dance in the middle of Santa Fe uh, <laughs> when she called me and told me that <laughs> I was walking out of an event and um was so excited, yeah, as you said she 's been such a trailblazer on so many things in this state for so long but for sure, on uh, reproductive rights, for sure, on access for women to the workforce, for sure, on family and medical leave. Um, And uh, I just think she's been a a luminary and a leader for decades, and she was a mentor to me when I first uh, was growing up and started my career in Colorado. And so, uh, you know, I was incredibly humbled to have her support and so excited to have uh, her involved in uh, our rollout around uh, reproductive health uh,
1: policy. Yes, and she and her husband—they are politically independent, but progressive on a lot of things. It's always been my theory that in Denver, the most liberal candidate usually wins, especially a head-to-head race. Are you the most liberal in this race?
7: Uh, oh, I think I'm. Pro- yeah, I think I'm probably the more progressive of the two candidates in, in this race, um, in terms of my track record and my uh, career service and the work that I've done, from a teacher and school principal to. State senator to nonprofit and foundation leader to the focus of work I've done along those years. I think my work on immigration reform and on climate activism and on gun safety and on minimum wage and family leave and on uh, certainly universal preschool and home ownership. And uh, I think those are all probably a, a strong set of. Uh, of accomplishments that I think are meaningful to to progressive voters in the city. So we hope we're going to try to earn their support.
1: Do you agree with my diagnosis of Denver politics?
7: Um, I don't know. I'd have to look back and study all the mayor's races to think that through. Um, So I always defer to you as a pretty wise student of of politics. So I don't have any evidence to prove you wrong, Uh, but I, I haven't done the deep study that you probably have.
1: Well, you could look at DA races too. That's more my focus. Speaking of which, Yep. What about Mitch Morrissey? Is he going to endorse? Have you sought his endorsement? Didn't your wife work for him for a lot of years?
7: I don't know if he's going to uh, endorse. I've um I've reached out to him as I've reached out to um uh, many of our elected leaders and former elected leaders around the around the city, and so um, uh, I reached out to him. We haven't we haven't talked yet, so I'm not sure what he will do or plan to do in this race.
1: We talked about Denver being a destination city, but part of that requires great airport we just saw an auditor's report that told us what we already knew god did somebody mess that up what are you going to do about that as mayor and is that you know a past problem somebody else's deal or will heads roll under a johnston administration
7: (laughs) no it is absolutely my problem when we you know that's a upside and the downside of being the mayor is you in, inherit every great thing or every problematic thing in the city when you take over. And so uh, we have to make sure it gets done on time and on budget and doesn't require more uh, extensions, either of costs or of timeline. And so I think that is critically important. I do think the mayor's done a great job turning that into a real economic driver for the city. And so we got to capitalize on that. I'd say the one I'm more worried about, Craig, honestly, is the, is the construction of the 16th Street Mall, where I think we're trying hard to help Uh, try to help downtown recover and get back after a pandemic. And right now you still have the, you know, the 16th Street Mall is really the spine of the downtown corridor and it's under construction. It means businesses are closing there. And so we got to work hard. Actually, I would make that my top priority on construction projects to make sure we get that done ahead of schedule. And um, because I think every day that that's under construction, we're losing business and losing traffic downtown. So both important, but I feel like we got to have a laser focus on the 16th Street Mall.
1: I know you're focused on the shooting tragedies, multiple at the East High School. Um, your reaction to that and would Mayor Johnston make a difference?
7: Yeah, I think there are a number of things we can do at East. One is we need a closer partnership between the city and the school board um, to be able to make sure we're working shoulder to shoulder on things. I think we can help on things like mental health support in schools to make sure students have access to that they need, the partnership with Denver Health. I think we can do that uh, with things like supporting after school and summer school programming for kids that need it. Um, and uh, we know we can do more intervention when we know kids are at risk. We gotta be able to get them the wraparound services they need to make sure they prevent themselves from either hurting themselves or hurting others. And so I think there is a lot we can do there and do better. Um, and I also think sometimes it's okay to disagree and to say we have different approaches to things. And I think if the school board is doing things that I don't agree with, I'll talk to them directly about that or I'll go to the public directly about it because I think we have an obligation to get people high quality services and I think for instance when the school leaders and teachers and principals and students all said we want school resource officers back in our building that schools should have the right to do that Um, so I came out and publicly said that and I was glad to see the board uh, reverse their position on that and allow East High School and other schools to have school resource officers back we know that doesn't make the entire difference all on its own but when you've had a school year with three shootings uh, in or around one high school, I think parents and kids are right to be worried and to want some additional safety.
1: It's not nearly as serious or consequential, but could you have the same tough talk with the owners of the Colorado Rockies? Because <laughs> I, I, I really worry they're squandering a huge community asset, and uh, the diminishment of enthusiasm really hurts downtown Denver, Uh, So I'm serious about it. I mean, we need new ownership to energize the Rockies, and I would think that the mayor of Denver could talk to those Weld County boys and say, hey, I got some billionaire buddies right here in Denver. They'll pay you a pretty penny. Can you make that work? Because to me, that would be a great selling point to elect you mayor. (laughs)
7: I had someone ask me yesterday if I had a plan to deal with Russell Wilson, too. And so uh, (laughs) I think there are certain things that are a little bit beyond my control. But, I mean, you're right, Craig. Obviously, the Rockies are a huge cultural and financial asset for the city. And so the better they do, the better we all do. So we do have a joint interest in that. We also have a – you know, it's a a, a great moment to have both the Avs and the Nuggets in the playoffs. And you can see the benefits we're reaping from that. Uh, We'd love to get the Broncos and the Rockies back to that same spot, and I said yesterday I will I will, uh, I will lay down in traffic before I let the Broncos leave the city of Denver. Nice. So we're going to do everything we need to to make sure the Broncos don't go anywhere.
1: What street are you going to lay down on?
7: I think I'd probably just lay myself at the 50-yard line and make them have to tear the stadium down around me. Oh, if, okay. uh, that was the proposal.
1: Oh. <laughs> I was thinking Broadway and Colpax. That, uh, that could be it, too. Oh. Anyway, let's hope it never comes to that. I'm glad yeah, you're I committed. We'll, I think
7: we'll find a good solution.
1: Well, tell us about uh, the rest of the campaign. When is voting day? When do ballots go out?
7: Yeah, the election is June 6th. Um, and so we think ballots should probably drop in mid-May, probably around the 15th of May. So right when everyone's looking to school year to get out and summer to come, you can't um, get too much Ah, uh, summer madness too early. Got to make sure and get your ballots, get them turned in uh, right away. And I think that uh, we're hopeful we'll have high turnout. We want to make sure everybody gets engaged. So yes, please and vote, encourage your neighbors, post on social media. We would love to have your support.
1: What about debates? Any more? There will
7: be a there will be a handful of debates. It'll be televised. I think at least two or three. um Those will be in May. I think also. Um, uh, I think we have invitations to more than forty. Uh, candidate forums, debates, town hall type events, neighborhood to neighborhood. So uh, I think they will have the craziest schedule of all time in terms of those kind of forums, but there will be three or four that will be televised.
1: Wow. It's the finishing race. I did see Kelly Brough. Wellington Webb endorsed her this week. How did you feel about that?
7: Oh, I I don't begrudge that. I understand that. I've worked with Wellington for a long time. He's in endorsed me before when I've run previously, and we've uh, partnered on on items before, and so I know everyone has their own reasons for making their own decisions, and I am really proud of the support we have across East Denver. You know, you mentioned uh, Peter Groff's Senate President, you mentioned Terrence Carroll, Speaker of the House, we will have, I think, a broad set of uh, both legislators and city council leaders um, from across that city and that represent real deep leadership in the African-American community, both from business leaders and from civic leaders and from elected. So we feel very strong about our uh, support in Northeast Denver, and we're going to work hard to turn everybody out.
1: Oh, boy, what a contest it is. You guys are so formidable. I know you're ready for this stretch run. So is Kelly Really appreciate your time, Mike. Again, my best, to Courtney, and your family. Stay safe, and thanks for another great interview.
7: You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend, Craig. I okay. appreciate you spending the time.
1: Take care. Bye now. Take care. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey?
6: What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, You can dictate who gets whatever leftover money, or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals.
1: How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office, and he has offices all over, and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer.
6: So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
8: Hi, Craig.
1: Troubadour, how are you?
8: I'm good. I'm sitting in traffic. Seems to be earlier and earlier these days. How are you doing, Craig?
1: Will you get to your gig on time?
8: Um, no, I'm a little late, but I'm pretty quick at setting up that PA. Will I start on time with the band? Yes.
1: Tell everybody where you had your show on Friday night, God willing. We taped this Friday afternoon and then Saturday night, if they want to see you, that's possible too.
8: Friday night we played at Left Hand Brewery, which is if you haven't tried their beer, it's great. Love their IPA. And then uh, um, Saturday we had a play, we had a gig at Wrigley's, which is an outside gig, and I think the weather is going to cancel that. Oh no, Well, okay. So, so the Longmont gig is what we're looking for uh, for for this weekend, rocking out.
1: I'll be looking at the Nuggets against the Timberwolves, but you understand Longmont's a long time uh, to drive, although I used to go up to the dog track in Loveland, and that's even further. But that was a long time ago. Tell us about your week, Dave Gunders. How are you? I hope you did better than that spaceship that Elon Musk launched. Did you see that?
8: I did not see it. I heard about it. Um yes, I've done better. I have not blown up this week. Um all's well, Craig. I'm looking forward to maybe having a walk this week uh this weekend with you. I'm still without a dog, but I think after New Orleans, which is next week, um I'm going to redouble my efforts to see if there's a pal out there waiting for me.
1: I can't stop thinking about the singularity, artificial intelligence, and I watched uh Elon Musk on with Tucker Carlson. Wow, he said something that could apply to artificial intelligence or just his theory of the world was kind of different. He said that everybody wants to see a crash and burn. Well, he certainly entertained us with that the other day, but some say it's the the price of progress. In the long term, AI may become autonomous and take over the world, but in the short term, it's
6: being used by politicians to control what you think, to end your independent judgment and erase democracy on the eve of a presidential election. Elon Musk is very worried about
0: that. He told us about his plan to stop it. What's happening is they're training the AI to lie. Yes. It's bad. To lie. That's exactly right. And to withhold information. To lie and... and Yes, and, and um, to, to, yeah, exactly. To, to either you know, comment on some things, not comment on other things, but, but not to say what, it, what, what the data uh, actually uh, demands that it say. Exactly. Um, so. Um, How did it get this way? I it's, thought it's, but it's, you funded it at the beginning.
6: What happened?
0: Yeah, well, that would be ironic. But faith, the most ironic outcome is the most likely, it seems. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling I'm that. That's good. That's actually where a friend of mine, Jonah, came up with that one. I actually have a slight variant on that, which is the most entertaining outcome is the most likely. But that's entertaining as viewed from a third-party viewer. <laughs> right. Like, uh, so if we're like an alien from TV show. From on yes. Yeah. Um, like you could go see a movie about World War One, and they're being blown to bits and gassed and everything in the, in the trenches. And it's like you're eating popcorn and having a soda. You know, it's yeah. fine. Uh, not so great for the people in the movie. True. This is Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is most likely. Jonah's variant, uh, which is um, irony, and then my variant, which is uh, 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 the the most entertaining as seen by a third-party audience, um, which seems to be mostly true.
1: I don't imagine you watch a lot of Tucker Carlson.
0: I
8: stay away from Tucker Carlson. If if I do watch, it's just to hear what he's, you know, it's it's to get um, kind of a take on what the... um, you know, irrational side of, of our news media is presenting at any given moment. Right. You know, especially, I have to admit, I turned on Fox when, uh, you know, when I heard the, about the Dominion settlement, Craig. I wanted to hear if what Fox was saying about it. And of course, they weren't saying anything about
1: it. Right. They put yeah. on so, Howie yeah. to I've had him on uh, the radio before. He's in a tough spot because people sell out for the money. I've been thinking a lot about that, but I've been watching Tucker Carlson because Donald Trump was on it for two straight nights. Got to keep up with what that SOB is saying. And then yeah. Elon Musk on two straight nights. And uh, you know what he's going to start, according to him? I have no idea. A competitor to Google and Microsoft and a different Chat GPT. One he says is going to be more honest, and he calls it Truth GPT.
0: And then I kind of took my off the ball, I guess. And uh, they are now closed source, um, and they are obviously for profit, and they're um, closely allied with Microsoft. Uh, you know, in effect, Microsoft. Uh, has a very strong say, if not um, directly controls uh, OpenAI at this point. Um, so you really have an OpenAI and Microsoft situation. And then at uh, Google DeepMind uh, are the other two sort of heavyweights in this arena. So it seems like the world needs a third option. Yes. So I, I, I think I will create a third option, um, although starting very late in the game, of course. Can it um, be done? I don't know. I think it's we'll, we'll see. It's uh, it's definitely starting late, um, but I will I will I will try to create a third option, um, and that third option hopefully does more more good than harm. Uh, like the intention with the opening eye was uh, obviously to do good, but it's not clear whether it's actually doing good or whether it's I, I can't tell at this point. Um, except that I'm worried about the fact that. Uh, it's being it's being trained to be politically correct, which is simply another way of of being untruth saying untruthful things. Yes. So that's that's a bad sign. There's certainly a path to AI dystopia. Is to train AI to be deceptive. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to start something which I know you call Truth GBT or uh, uh, a maximum truth seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this this might be the best path to safety in the sense that uh, an AI that Cares about understanding the universe. Uh, it is unlikely to annihilate humans because we are an interesting part of the universe. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> they would think that. I, I think it would, I, you know because yeah, like like we, we like human, humanity could um, decide to hunt down all the chimpanzees and kill them, but we yes. don't because right. we're, we're we're actually glad that they exist. Yes, and um, and we, we aspire to protect their habitats.
6: But we feel that way because we have souls, and that makes us. Sentimental and reflective, it gives us a moral sense, longings. Can a machine ever have those things?
0: Can a machine be sentimental? Can it appreciate beauty? Well, I mean, we're getting to, into some you know, philosophical areas that are hard to resolve.
1: Isn't that something, the same word that Donald Trump attaches to his social media, truth social, when these guys say, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth, why am I suspicious yeah. of those guys more you, than anybody? You better bu-
8: you better. Yeah, you better buckle up <laughs> <All> <laughs> for, right. for some, prepos- some preposterous claim. That's their truth.
1: It's like somebody know. testifying when they say, you know what? To be totally honest, there's that, the other. Wow. If you don't qualify it, what are you doing otherwise? Why do you have to say, now I'm being honest? It's not, it's kind of a tell, but, uh, well, yeah.
8: yeah. Mur- I was reading about Murdoch in the, in the New York times, and, and you know, his, uh, a little history of, of, you know, how he, he came to, to, uh, how Fox news came to be. And, um, you know, his other investments like the wall street journal, you know, some of the more, the more, the more staid respected mm-hmm. newspapers, but, um, it's interesting the way he was weighing off. He was constantly doing this calculus of, you know, the truth in, in terms of, you know, the, the lies that he knew were being told about the fraudulent election and this and that versus his desire to, uh, for, for more listenership. And, and uh, I, I just don't understand why that calculus should exist. If, if something's true, say it. <laughs> Even if it hurts your pocketbook, it's a no-brainer. Craig, but not for not for a guy like Murdoch, you know, and his right. followers, you know. And, his, and you know who was,
1: uh, who was suspicious of non-naturally born citizens? I, I just bring up Rupert Murdoch is from Australia. You've got Elon Musk from South Africa. Do they really have loyalty to the American experiment? I don't know. I have my doubts. And it seems like it may be. More than money at this point. And the guy's really old. How much money does he need? And how much destruction can he and a guy like Tucker Carlson cause? Not only was Trump on, but he featured RFK Jr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is between your age and my age. Did you know that? Do you remember no. much about Bobby Kennedy Jr.?
8: No. Did he lose his leg? No. Is he the one that had... No. no? I get confused with He's the He's not candidates. the
1: guy who got killed uh, on this ski slope in Colorado. Well, I know but, that. No. But he was prominent, and he was a leader, and he was a young deputy DA. They call him ADAs in New York about the same time I was starting, 1980. Uh, I started with the Denver DA. He started around the same time with Manhattan DA's office, but in 1983, he had a bit of a problem. Do you remember what that was? I'll tell you. He got caught shooting up with heroin, which wasn't good. Right. He wanted to rehab, but then he rehabbed and he got into environmental law. And he did that incredibly well for a long time with Big Firm. And then he's had his personal struggles, obviously, and marital this, that. The family's not necessarily backing him, but. Boy is Tucker Carlson, who featured him the other night with his announcement.
3: I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. <laughs> Am I- My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now <laughs> Is threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country to commoditize our children, our Purple Mountain's majesty, to poison our, our children and our people with, with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs, to strip mine our assets, to hollow out the middle class and keep us in a constant state of war.
1: Already he's, well, he's in double digits? So what are his politics? He thinks but that it, uh, America's getting sold out to big corporations, big polluters, and he's the guy to fight it. Okay. No, well, nothing he, wrong with that. He's totally anti vax. Oh, he's anti vax. Yes. Okay. He, so that- he, and on previous vaccines, he said that it's linked to autism, and the truth right. has been suppressed.
8: Right, right. Okay.
1: He thinks big so farm is of, our enemy. Yes, go ahead.
8: He's liberal in a he's liberal in a sense, but prone to conspiracy theories. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Including hanging out with Tucker Carlson and a bunch of yeah. questionable fellas like Roger Stone. So is he a tool of Donald Trump? I don't know. But it's not like he didn't have a good education, went to an Ivy League school like Michael Johnston, got his law degree from Virginia. I already told you about how he was a prosecutor and then after struggles he went on to do interesting things. But anybody who uses Fox News, I don't know. I'm a media whore, but if they called me to come on this weekend, I don't think so. I think they've gone too far. They sold out America. That's what that settlement says to me.
8: Well, and the fact is that you know you're not you're not what you called yourself. You you think responsibly and you're you know, the truth matters, your words matter. Um, I mean, that has to be this, you know, that has to be central to that conviction to purvey the truth and to honestly seek out the truth is something that uh, I think every journalist should, should you know, kind of like the, the um, what's it called, the hypocrite, the um, hypocrite, Hippocratic oath.
1: Hippocratic Thank you, oath. the Hippocratic
8: yeah. oath that a, that a doctor takes, right? right? Do no harm, and that everybody has to be lined up with this. And you know, the, the, I know, uh, but
1: d- should I should I go on Fox News if they ask me? Hey, they're giving me a platform, and even though I don't yes. like, tech, I should. Gest-
8: well, I I would I would certainly um I, I, right, yes I would say yes go on and speak your mind as it is. Don't make stuff up. Speak as Sil- as Craig Silverman. I know, if, you know but if never Tucker mind Carl, the platform.
1: I don't know. I think, they- haven't they gone too far? It's like you going up to Left Hand Brewery right now. And they're fine people, right? You already vouched for their beer. But say they were owned by uh, Putin, you know, Russian mafia. Yeah, right. Would you still play there?
8: No, I would not play there. Oh, I would not play that's there. That's the way I no. feel
1: about Fox News now. That's
8: the way it has to be.
1: Well, anyway. Anyway, right, what, if, what if Neil yeah. Cabuto called? You know, he stood up a little against the big lie. And you know who he had on the other day? William Shatner. William All Shatner, right. one of my favorites. And he he's talked an about yeah. anticipating death because he's what yes he's, And he said he loves it.
8: Well, he says if, if embracing death as part of life will enrich your life
2: absolutely i'm going to tell you the secret my days are numbered oh here we go again don't say that well well but, but we all are going to die I know. and if you have very your really me out bill well but, but if then your life becomes more yeah. more uh, tangible more tasty more uh, filled with adventure because you've got to be aware of everything this may be the last time you got to go there. Death is part of life, and if you keep that in mind, life is so much more r- richer.
8: I think by the time you get to be an older person, that's kind of uh, it's. It's kind of uh, you don't need to to read those words or hear them to understand that when there's a when there's a limit on anything, it makes the the, the present more more precious, doesn't it?
1: Right, and that brings us back to artificial intelligence. If we hit the singularity, some people say it'll be by 2029. 20, there's a promise of immortality. We live forever. Are you down with that, Dave Gunders?
8: I'm down with you coming back to reality, Craig.
1: You and, can't and, see and, and how that. simple it would be to reverse aging once we have no, artificial intelligence. I can't intelligence. see how simple it is. I'm very skeptical You're of all that. You're probably one stuff. of those guys who thought we could never fly from one city to another. A hundred years ago. Anyway, Perhaps. when it happens, all these issues come up. I'll meet you. I'll, I'll be going one way and you'll be coming back the other. When you drive up but, to Longmont for performance, do you get nervous? I get nervous that I'm not going to get there on time. I know you were. <laughs> Traffic. <laughs> but do you, <laughs> no, do you get, get any go. stage fright?
8: No, I get my guitar in my hand and it's been in my hand for many years and I'm comfortable.
1: Do you know Mike yes. Johnston, in honor of your song, I asked him about whether he's going to fill up every space in Denver, Colorado, if he's mayor.
8: The right oh. space, yeah. Well, what did he say? And I, I, I look forward to hearing hearing his, his uh, response.
1: I know you liked his first episode. No, he said it's got to be a balance, of course. But I tried to work in your song because yes. it's a beauty. What? And have you realized how perfect the song that we simultaneously picked out and how interesting is that is perfect for this episode in a variety of ways. Tell us about your it song, is. every space and why you think it's perfect for episode one hundred and forty-five.
8: The song starts out with, uh, actually. So someone listening to a rock and roll band and them playing too loud. I say that you don't have to play that loud, to make that rock and roll sound. So in this case, there, there's, it's an aural kind of thing. They're uh, they're playing so loud that there's no there's no space in the music. There's mm-hmm. no quiet, and um, and then I go on to, to uh, he's having a conversation with someone, and they're doing all the talking. Then I move on to the idea of no space of how you know the, how how we're not we're not taking care of our environment. We're not good responsible stewards of the earth, and we're rolling over so much of these natural habitats. So it, it's, it's, it's a song about you know, conserving what's, what's beautiful, whether it's, whether it's art, whether it's our environment, but, but taking care of things, not overdoing it.
1: It's another brilliant song, and it works on all those levels, perfect for civic planning, something that Mike Johnston has to be thinking about. But we're talking about William Shatner, and we're talking about space. And you give me a song called Every Space on a week when we talk about Elon Musk sending up a rocket that explodes in space. Man, how do you do it?
8: I'll tell you what. Well, I think it's uh, I think you're great at, at, at delving into the, the Dave Gunders catalog and picking the right song. So it's great that we both on our own thought this would be a good one.
1: Let's let everybody hear it. Every Space. Bye, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Have fun tonight. Thanks for doing this.
8: Thanks, Craig. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat
1: Shalom.
5: Got their amps turned up to 10 They don't have to play So loud to Get that rock and roll sound For a pause for breath Give my naked ears a rest You don't have to go On and on I'm already gone Please don't fill up every space Please don't fill up every space around God on high left some room for the sky where the clouds are form and drift, and give our spirit lift high above the forest and the trees, such a thing of beauty walking round meet this crown star. Shining crazy from afar The endless night And all the blackness and the space between We're alive and dreaming Dreaming in the light the apple nor the tree something else entirely got me worried gonna save Eden you better hurry please don't fill up every space don't ruin the beauty and the grace Don't fill up every space. I hold you,
1: Michael. Of course, it's a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs, what about you?
6: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
6: So, I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark, to take care of your pets Um, you know a lot of people you know they've got their dogs and they love their dogs but then if somebody were to you know if you're if you were to pass away you know who's going to take your dogs who would who would love your dogs as much as you do i don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do but like i grew up with dogs and so if i were to pass away then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs so when you set up a pet trust you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well
1: i like working with you and i think you are ahead of your time you have 15 different locations how cool is that
6: it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them
1: and nobody wants to drive from one part of metro denver to the other to meet with a lawyer you will come to them
6: yep and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
6: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule. You know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website.
1: All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Solberman, A Voice for Victims, 303-734-7156. Did I tell you this was going to be a great show? And we delivered. Dave Gunders, Every Space, another great song. Fits perfectly with the theme of episode 145, highlighting the guy who could be the mayor of Denver pretty darn soon, Michael Johnston, thanks for coming on again. Sam Silverman, way to go. And Aaron Steinberg, way to go. Holy cow, a power position. Use your power wisely, will you, please? Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.